Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. Before we jump in, I just want to warn you that today's episode contains content and stories that may be alarming to some listeners. So please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions. Thanks so much. Shame doesn't help me be accountable in the way that I want to be accountable. Shame makes it about me. Like, I did this thing and therefore I am worthless. Therefore, I am a bad person. And therefore, I am all these negative things. But in the process of doing that, I'm thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about the person whose life I've taken. I'm not thinking about the family that was left behind. I'm not thinking about my family who had to endure their, their loved one being incarcerated. Hello and welcome to Man Enough. I'm Justin Baldoni. And this is Jamie Heath from the Man Enough podcast. And today we have a beautiful episode of What's Underneath Masculinity presented by BetterHelp. Every Thursday we are releasing a new episode of our beautiful partnership with the amazing YouTube channel Style Like You, where men get truly vulnerable and remove an article of clothing with every conversation. I have a question before we jump in. How many of you have made a terrible mistake? How many of you have made a mistake that's beyond terrible? That almost is unforgivable. Well, we have people in our world and society that have done things that oftentimes we cannot let go of. And when you see them transform themselves and take their horror and turn it into healing the world and themselves, how can we not celebrate and recognize that? We have an individual on this episode named JJ88, who if you remember on the Man Enough podcast, we had Richie and Manny. They have a thing called success stories where when they were incarcerated, not only did they transform themselves, but they looked and reached out to others that were there about full accountability and transforming themselves. JJ88 is one such human. This is a young man at the age of 15 who had committed murder, got caught up in gang life. That's all he knew. That was his upbringing. That was his friends. That was his life. Um, committed murder for acceptance. Quickly found out that it was not acceptable, that the people around him thought, what the hell did you just do? And was sentenced to 40 years in prison. He was recently released from prison about a year and a half ago. Now, the work that he has done in order to be released is one that I think surpasses so much of our own work that we do. This is a guy that has recognized his wrongs, is an advocate for feminism, is an advocate for healing, accountability, doing the work that requires a lot of soul searching that I think we can all learn from. He has learned ways to forgive himself and others. This is really a special one. This is a true work in progress, an artist and a man who is modeling how you take accountability in the most extreme terms. And I believe that after listening to this interview, you might have some compassion for a group of people that you otherwise may have not had, individuals and souls who we cannot give up on that do something so stupid, horrific. I'm not gonna like mince my words. There's nothing good about what he did. But there has to be some redemptive quality in us as humans that when we make these mistakes that we can actually listen, learn, and grow if we are going to have a chance of, as, as a species, honestly. So I commend JJ88 for the work that he's done, who he's become, and his dedication to healing the world. Jump on in with me and let's listen to this episode with JJ88 speaking about his journey. And um, let's have an open heart and open mind to healing. All right, so let us know what you think of this one on our socials at We Are Man Enough. Uh, I hope you enjoy. So can you just begin by talking about how you're feeling right now? I am nervous and anxious 
I believe this is like my first interview too. Ever? Yeah. This is like in freedom. I've never had this like happen. So. Oh, that's an Thank excellent one for us. Amazing. <laughs> they take off one pin. Yeah. This pin is a photo of Malcolm X, and it says, "Shoot films, not people." I got it in Lamert Park from a designer. She was referring to the way black people are being shot in the streets and it's being filmed. And if we can find a way to use art instead of violence and, and talk about these issues, uh, then perhaps we can resolve them and we can progress. Can you talk a little bit about what your style says about you? Um, I am really discovering my style right now. I try to like watch people's style and like maybe see pieces on them that I'm like, maybe I can try that. My history of style is like with baggy clothes. I grew up in like the early 2000s. So it was always, you know, fat form, Ava racks, like big baggy jeans. And it seems that baggy has come back and, and I'm seeing it in a new form even. Um, so I'm just like trying to work my way toward it and just get comfortable. I'm, I think my style just says that I'm like searching for it. Mm. Does that have to do with like kind of not being able to like wear your own clothes and express yourself for a long time or like yeah. feeling like it's new? Yeah, I spent 18 years um, wearing what I was handed um, and it was usually very monotone um, or a monochromatic, I should say, blues browns, black, tan. There was no red shoes. Your shoes are white, your shoes are gray. Um, Where were you? I was incarcerated from juvenile hall to state prison. I was sentenced to 40 years to life when I was 15 um, or 16. And when I got to prison, however, after a while, you just like, I gotta do something to this shit. Excuse my language, but I have to do something to this these clothes that they keep giving me because it feels very like patient-y and hospital-y. It can like affect the way you think about yourself. And so what, what I found was like, there were tailors inside who would like, you know, cut it and design it the way you want. And so we began to fit um, the clothes that we wore to visiting in a very particular way. So I would shape those in whatever style I thought was like cool and Coming home, I think I like take that same like experimenting spirit to like find things that I like now, like mm -hmm. um, colors that I like. When they put you in clothes, when, when they force you to look like everyone else, um, it says that none of you guys are people. You're not a person. You have no right to express that you are a person. And in prison, you kind of just, not only are you bound physically, um, you're bound even in your expression. So to wear it on a daily basis, to wear sweatpants and um, tube socks and T-shirts and elastic band, waistband pants that says prisoner down the side of it or prisoner on the back of mm. your shirt, it's dehumanizing. Mm. Um, it's minimizing the fact that I am dynamic and um, expressive, you know? It's against the rules. Um, it's against the rules to express yourself. It doesn't aid us in any way as a society to make incarcerated people wear the same thing. Um, it doesn't aid us to stifle expression because when a person expressed, now you, now you get to know them. Now you get to, to see them a little bit more. What did it feel like to, um, have the label prisoner on your shirts and like your pants. It's intense. But over over time, you, you get numb to it. I wasn't there at the time when black people were being called the N-word just flippantly, right? And it was just every day. That was just your name. I imagine after a while, like my, my ancestors and the people who, who endured that time just understood, like that's just how they see me. And the same is true when you have prisoner written down your leg, that's just how they see me. That's not who I am. Um, but they intend to use that word to separate me from you, to separate 
me from my mother, from my family, to separate my value from yours. And it's just not something that I believed in. So I was just like, that's how they see me. When you're going through oppression, you can either accept that they, that you are what they say you are. Like, you are a monster. You are unworthy. You can accept that and, and live like that. And people do. Or you can acknowledge who you truly are, you know, and, and stay grounded in who you truly are. And in that way, it makes it less about them and what they're calling me. It's like, it ain't even about y'all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it's just me knowing um, who who my father sees when he looks at me. Me remembering who my community sees when they look at me, um, in spite of what somebody is calling me or trying to define me as. Mm. We'll be right back. Welcome back to What's Underneath Masculinity. Can you talk a little bit about the assumptions that people make about you based on how you look? I went into prison as a child. I was 15. I was very small. I wasn't like a big kid. I was always a small kid. Um, but when you get, when I came home, I'm around children and femme folk and women. I realized that I was a, like an actual man, like in my body. The space that my body takes up is different. And I didn't notice the difference because I was around other men my whole life. And I noticed that it comes with like a privilege. It comes with like a, like people tend to move or, or not depending on like their size and the way they're, they're perceiving their body and right to take up space, right? When I go out with friends and we go to like a festival and we're like moving through a crowd, people will move for me and my male friends. They're usually taller. We can bogart our way through. And I, I just noticed that I had to like pay attention to where my femme friends were um, because they didn't have the same access just to move through a crowd. And it just was stark to me. And as I'm experiencing that, I'm just noticing like, you know, when the train door opens um, and I, I choose to walk through, people might step aside. Whereas if my wife is in front of me, they won't. It's kind of like why I was wearing slimmer clothes too just trying to be smaller because I was trying to like match how I felt a little. Like even getting out of prison, I noticed like I I didn't like look at people. I didn't want to be perceived because I wasn't used to being perceived. I'm used to like being invisible to society out here. And I I think now I'm a bit different. I'm like willing to take up a little bit more space because I feel equal. You know, when you call the prisoner over and over and over and over, some of it like sinks in. It does affect your self-esteem. It, it affects your, your worthiness, how much space you're worthy of taking up, you know? And I think now, uh, as I like learn who I am and discover who I am, um, I discover more how worthy I am to, to be here, um, to be in community. What about like assumptions that you think people make about you when they first hear the idea that you committed murder? When they find out how young I was, um, they will assume it was an accident. They, they kind of want to avoid demonizing me in the way that we demonize people who commit murder. I, I noticed that that's the assumption that I wasn't committed to toxic ways of being. Mm. Um, which led to someone's life being taken. Another assumption I think people make is the opposite, uh, which is that I am a monster, um, that I am, I should be demonized. I don't deserve to be here. It doesn't make you feel like good when they, when they assume that you, it was a mistake or some kind of, no, some kind like, of accident. No, I won't, I, I would never live in that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not accountable. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not who I am to live in a, a false narrative that it wasn't um, as serious as it was. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't benefit me. It doesn't benefit um, the family of the, the young man who I murdered. It doesn't benefit my community mm-hmm. and the people who are seeing what's taking place in our communities to, to just 
it, keep it in the binary where it's either you're a monster or you're, you've done something on accident. As if there's no middle ground. As if it's just the archetype. It doesn't benefit us for me to live in that assumption and, uh, and allow people to live in that mm-hmm. assumption. Do you notice that anyone, like, when they find it out, like, acts scared? I haven't noticed it. Mm-hmm. I hope not. <laughs> what I did notice is, like, people from my past who knew me may act a bit different because it was shocking for them as, as, as kids, too. Mm-hmm. So they, like, mm-hmm. see me a, a particular way and don't know who I am now. What's an example of that? I've experienced, like, some of my old homies that I was, like, in the streets with. It's an eye contact thing. It's a way that they extend their hand and shake it. Um, it's a way they embrace. Like, if somebody comes to embrace you with a handshake and a hug, and it's not your hand on your chest and his hand on his chest, it's going to be a barrier if it's like this, right? And you sense that. Mm-hmm. We, we as men, communicate that. It gets mm-hmm. further and further. You got some dudes who won't even bring you in. They keep their hand out here. Mm-hmm. And you just notice it. Mm-hmm. And you notice, like, you're a little bit more standoffish, and it's probably because of what you know about me. Mm-hmm. Something I did notice, since we're talking about embrace, like, people are huggers out here. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's culture shock. Because in prison, you don't touch people. Unless it's your people, you don't touch people. You know? When you meet somebody, you're like, hey, how you doing? You, you fist bump, you shake a hand, you keep your distance. So coming here, it has been like an overwhelming, like, in a good way, overwhelming, like, pouring of embrace. And people are just far more open to embrace um, people they just meet. Mm. It's noticeable for a person like me because I didn't come from that. I didn't grow up in that kind of world. Can you take your glasses off, too, please? (laughs) Can you take us back to when you were 15 and what happened? Um... It was around like 11 or 12, my parents divorced. Um, And I grew up in a very like Christian household, very like traditional um, home. And when my parents divorced, it really fractured my identity. Um, I didn't know what my place was. I had two homes. My brother was incarcerated. And the streets were available. Um, Violence was available. And validation from, like, street and gang culture was made available to me. And I dove in head first. I have family members like aunts and uncles who are gang members and grew up in gang culture. So I, I was raised in it. I don't know a lot of people that didn't attach to gang members where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so gang members get a, a certain um, tag or they're associated with a certain demeanor, um, but they are people. They are your cousins. They like your cousins. My brother uh, was, was from a, a different gang and he was incarcerated for about four and a half years. I, my, my brother is six years older than me. And so he would beat me up. We would fight and he would just beat me up. Um, He would bully me, he would dominate me. He would also protect me when we go outside um, and are around other kids. He wouldn't, like, he would, you know, he had my back. Um, But from that experience of fighting my brother, fighting my older cousins, and my brother taking me outside and fighting other kids my age, I learned how to fight and I can fight well. And that came with like praise sometimes. Um, Even just the willingness to fight um, when you're the person who is excited and if there's a confrontation um, at school and you like not afraid and you're like, I fight anybody, people tend to like be drawn toward that and be like, cheer it on like you're a gladiator. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I was 15 years old, I was in a gang and had access to guns. And one night I, I shot somebody at a party. Um, we had an altercation where we threatened one another. 
and me feeling like this is my hood, this is my territory, you can't talk to me like that. I'm offended. I'm insulted. And in gang culture, I'm well within my rights to act violently. As a young man, like, when you are a gang member and you say something is your hood, your territory, your land, um, you expect a certain type of behavior from people who are outside of that tribal land. And when I encountered this young man, we um, were staring at each other and, and kind of posturing a little bit. And that led to an argument, that led to a, you know, a kind of back and forth about like, what you looking at, what are you doing, you know? I decided to escalate it because I believe that um, whoever is the most violent is the most dominant. Whoever is the most dominant has the most value. Mm. Whoever has the most value has the most power. Mm. I left and got a gun from one of my homies, came back and I shot him. Was he extremely enraged? I was angry. I wouldn't say that I was enraged. To say I was in, I, I was enraged. It doesn't speak to like the culture that was at play in my mind. It was the, the most devastating thing I could do in this world is take someone's son from them, take someone's brother from them, you know. Um, I didn't know at 15 how devastating it would be. Right after I shot him, I ran. I ran because of the potential for somebody that he went to shoot. I ran because that's what I saw in movies. You shoot and you run. I saw the helicopter. I saw the police cars going by and I walked around um, my neighborhood for about 30 to 40 minutes before I arrived at a friend's house um, where um, everybody was at. And that's when I realized I wasn't gonna receive the praise that I thought I was gonna get. Um, after I committed murder, I thought I was gonna be like celebrated by my homies. Um, I thought I was gonna have some sort of status and, and notoriety. Um, and it didn't come. A lot of my friends were my age and they were afraid. Like, what did you do? What are you thinking? And I was confused by that. I was confused by people's reaction to what I thought was like something I was supposed to do as a gang member, something I was supposed to do as uh, a man or a boy. And I'm genuinely confused. Mm -hmm. um, I conclude in that moment like, oh, y'all cowards. I had believed the doctrine already. So if y'all are scared of this or you guys don't adhere to this, I'm like, oh, y'all not true believers like I am. I'm a real gangster. You thought it was going to bring you more like belonging and... Right. I thought I was going to be more a part of um, something that I was seeking. The night I committed murder, I was getting calls from people once I made it home. And I got this this phone call from one of the older homies. He says, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know if you did or you didn't, but they saying you did. They saying you shot somebody. And I just want you to know that he gone. And he ain't coming back. That was my older homie, Swoop. He was like an older teenager. And he just told it to me plain. And, you know, I heard him. And, I, you know, I still didn't know what that meant. So some days later, I, I told my parents um, because I was scared. I was scared of retaliation. I was scared of the police. Um, and that's when I began to like feel like coming into like the knowledge of how severe it is to take a life. When I had to tell my parents, my father is a man of integrity, truly. He, uh, he taught me to not live the life I was living. 
so did my mother. Just growing up a boy, we're taught to take on certain forms of masculinity. And in my community, one of the forms of masculinity was gangbanging. And so I didn't trust my parents when they got a divorce. I didn't know what to believe. So I stopped listening to them. I started to listen to my friends. I started to listen to the kids I hung out with. I started to listen to different type of music that my father was raising me on. I grew up at the church, so he was only playing gospel. Um, and I started to listen to other music and I started to take on a different form of myself, mm -hmm. a more toxically masculine form, a more violent form, a more like macho form, you know? And the gang, being in gang culture is, is a perfect place to develop it. It's a chosen family. It's a chosen identity. We wear one color, we wear the same color, we flag the same thing. At that time, um, more and more of my friends and more and more of the kids I knew had guns. At that time, I'm like heavily influenced by like the music I'm listening to. The, the songs that I'm singing at that time is chanting violence, literally. It convinced me that it was okay to take a life, mm. um, that it was as simple as said in a song. And it isn't. It's something I gotta live with for the rest of my life. It's something I walk into the room with in every room I walk into. If you don't live in those assumptions, if you don't allow people to live in the assumptions, then you have to walk around with the truth that you have taken a life. I have taken a life. It's irreversible. It's final, you know? And I, I had to grow up with that. So by the, at this time, you know, I've made peace with living with it and made peace with being accountable about it and talking about it. Mm -hmm. Eventually though, I did experience abandonment from the gang I was from. Only the ones who were my friends before I gang bang actually stuck around. There was not one adult from my gang who reached out to my mama, to me, to my sister, to, to nobody in my family to support um, what I was facing. Also, I decided to stop gangbanging. Like, that's a part of their support, too, that you're going to continue to gangbang. Not that I won't humanize my homies and humanize the people who are from where I'm from, but um, I just do it different now. And when you're in prison and you're not a gang member, then you don't get the support of gang members. But, you know, it, the, the, the ones who, like my real homies, the ones I'm still in ties with are people who supported me throughout. And they happen to be gang members. Mm -hmm. um, they happen to be people who, whose children I care about, who cares about my mom and cares about my family. How do you feel talking about all of this? Is it something that's like hard for you to do or? No, I'm just thinking about his family, mm -hmm. for real. Mm -hmm. And like them hearing this story. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hurt, mm. hurt them by telling this story. Mm. But I also um, want people to understand mm. um, what goes on in, a, in the mind of a kid who, who is capable of committing murder, mm -hmm. taking a life, which is why I keep speaking to what I was convinced of and what I believed in, how I felt. When I told my parents the sadness in their face, not the disappointment, not the anger, which would come later, um, the sadness for what has happened, like they lost someone. That's what I read in their sadness mm -hmm. that it may have been in part for me, of course, I'm their child, but I knew also it was for the life of this young man. The empathy. He is attached to people. He comes from a family. Mm -hmm. So three days after I commit murder, my brother is murdered in a separate incident. And this moment where my family is experiencing such a loss and their child has taken such a great thing, such a big thing, a life, it made it real for me. And, and understand, too, that when I say the, it made it real for me, the, the magnitude of it all set in 
Um, I don't mean fully. Yeah. I just mean that I took note that something big has happened because of what I've done. Mm-hmm. And so I, nobody's really explaining to me um, what it means to take a life. Nobody is really explaining to me the value of life. I think it's something that we assume children know. And I didn't know. Um, it's not an excuse. It's an understanding that this is why I didn't know how his life is attached to mine. Mm-hmm. His life is attached to others. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the significance of that. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think I, I come to know that until around like 18 in my early 20s. Uh, I begin to know it mm-hmm. um, even deeper. If I harm you, I'm not just harming you, I'm harming your daughter. Right. From serious harm like uh, murder to um, other harms like domestic violence or verbal abuse and emotional abuse. Like, mm-hmm. you emotionally abuse someone, you, it's not just them you emotionally abuse, you emotionally abuse the people that they are in emotional relationship with other people that they are in relationship with. Right. Every choice we make and every action has like a reverberation that travels through time, you know, that, that doesn't stop. Right. I think, I think it's fair to say that we are taught that it happens, that there is a ripple effect, but we aren't taught like what it looks like when it happens. Um, of mm-hmm. course, I know if you shoot someone, they could die. Mm-hmm. I know it happens, but what happens in that process when a person dies? This is not something that you can necessarily hear in songs right now. Mm-hmm. They could tell you that people die, but they don't tell you how and what happens when they do. And the how, I mean, in the spiritual how, mm-hmm. how a family loses, how a family dies, a piece of a, piece of a family dies. Can you take off like your watch or something? Or, or... I could take off my watch. So this watch is, it's a bulva. Um, this watch is my, my dad's watch. My first Christmas home, my father gifted me um, his watch um, that he loved, and I wear it nearly every day. For me, it's really just to keep my father present. He's like an important person to me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite people in the world. Why? I think my dad has found a way to uh, perfectly love me. And I, I mean that in the most like connected sense. Like my dad is open to who I am as a person, fully. He has his understandings of the world. He has his own perspective and he offers them to me, not as a means of necessarily forcing it. I think early on he was trying to force me into his way of thinking. Um, and then he started to just let me be a person and has just been open with me and, and supported me through um, my incarceration in a way that is unique to him and, and means and has meant so much to me. Um, and he would say things like, you know, son, I want to be like you. And for your 60 plus father to say they want to be like you and you admire them, it's, it's like... Um, I love him. He's a good man. Can you, I think he could take the whole jacket off at this point. You still, mm-hmm. you're enjoying the pin game? Okay, can you take <laughs> off your next pin? <laughs> this is a pin of Prince. Prince is arguably the greatest musician that has walked this earth. He inspires me um, being a musician who played everything on his album has always been like dope to me. My collaborator, Richie Reseda, he was baptized in Prince. His father raised him on Prince. And so he would always point out to me, like, Prince's first album um, had, like, something like 26 instruments on the album, and Prince played every last one of them. In my career, I want to say that I, like, played everything that you hear. When I wrote songs like Bird on the Bob Wire, it was just guitar when I was in prison. And when I would think about those songs, I would hear the other instruments as well. And I was just like, I just got to get the freedom just to get access to them so I can like try to be like Prince and play everything. (laughs) 
Can you take off your your that pin? This pin? Yeah. All right. So this pin is one of Harriet Tubman. It says, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. Harriet Tubman is, to me, like the goddess of abolition, truly. To get free, to escape oppression, to escape your abuser, and then go back for others. Not once, but so much so that you knew the, the South and the underground routes so well that the U.S. government hired you to be a spy. Like, mm. this woman was extraordinary. Oh. She was an extraordinary uh, liberator. And I very much see myself as a person who um, has attained my freedom through transforming myself, um, through policy that I worked on. And as an abolitionist, I feel it's my responsibility to go back for those who are still in prison. My brothers, um, my sisters who are still incarcerated, the folks who are still incarcerated, um, who, whose humanity is being overlooked. Um, so I often wear Harriet and try to like move in the spirit of, of Harriet Tubman, for real. So can you take us like a little bit on the journey from kind of not realizing what you had done to like really letting yourself take it in and kind of starting to maybe feel kind of accountable? I don't know if that would be the word that you would use. Yeah. So I was um, 18 years old on a level four maximum security prison. And during that time, it was so dark because the severity of taking a life uh, was weighing heavy. I, I began to like hate myself for what I had done. And so if you are feeling guilt and shame and it is causing you to, to think less of yourself, then it is not helpful. It is not from God. Shame is not accountability. I think shame is a way for um, either to express that you agree your value is, is, has been made less um, or for someone to project it on you, that you are valueless. Um, and shame is the feeling of that, that lack of value. Shame doesn't help me be accountable in the way that I want to be accountable. Shame makes it about me. Like I did this thing and therefore I am worthless. Therefore I am a bad person and therefore I am all these negative things. It like says the accountable thing and then goes right back to you. Mm. I didn't want to feel bad about myself but I also didn't want to minimize what I had done. So um, how do you do that? And I think the way that I found to do that was to say what happened, period. Like to say um, what my what was happening with me emotionally, what was happening with me um, with regard to what I believed about myself, about community, about people and humans. Like the give the account and don't attach your ego to it because I can say something in the account and it makes me I I, I would have good reason to accept the invitation to feel bad about myself. Um, but in the process of doing that, I'm thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about um, the person whose life I've, I've taken. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about the family that was left behind. I'm not thinking about my family who had to endure their their loved one being incarcerated. It's, it's actually what you're saying is something so, so, so important and powerful because we have to fiercely love ourselves no, no matter what. Like we, we, in order to really show up, Without it, you, um, you can't be restored. Like, I wanted to be restored to my family. I wanted to be restored to community. I wanted to be restored to the value that I thought I had lost, that being in prison told me I had lost, right? Um, and in order to be restored, you have to believe that you are worthy of being restored. Was there like a rock bottom with the shame thing or the, that then like, yeah, that turned things around for you? Yeah, I was... Um, about 20, 19, 20 years old, and we were on a lockdown. Um, when you're on lockdown in prison, of course, no one comes out. 
And so I'm in the cell by myself on this lockdown and I'm cleaning the cell. And I like concluded that I could not live with myself anymore. Um, I could not live with this regret. I could not live with this shame. I felt like I was a burden to my, my family because they're now forced to take care of me while I'm in prison. At this time, I'm, I'm serving a 40 years to life plus life sentence. Meaning you think you're going to be there forever. I'm going to die here. Yeah. I'm going to die in this box. And I couldn't live with that. I was like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to live as a burden to my family, the, the family that survives uh, this trauma that I've caused is happier if I die. And I was suicidal. And that day, I was sitting on my toilet, and I had a sheet in my hand, and I was trying to figure out where I was going to hang myself from our light or from my bunk. And truly a miracle, um, a friend of mine sees me through the window and he gets the tower to open the cell. He like taps the top of my cell door, open 118. And the tower does um, open the door and he hugs me. And he says, don't you ever let them get you here. He knew I was ready to go. And he demanded that I fight. Don't give up. I decided that if I was going to live, I was going to try to like transform myself. Hmm. Can you take off your jacket finally? Yeah. How did, how did you start to transform? I think honestly, releasing shame is the first stage for me. And I, I you know, I didn't have this language then. I wasn't thinking in terms of like, worthy, unworthy at 20. Um, I didn't get this language until later in my life, but it certainly like is the principle of what I felt, um, which is like a deservingness of transforming myself. And so I started like going to school, um, or at least I finished up school, um, got my GED, and I started taking like um, different, you know, self-help classes that um, incarcerated people were starting. I found people who were, you know, reading Khalil Gibran. Mm -hmm. um, the Prophet. The Prophet. All the while, like, I'm, I'm, I'm writing, you know, I'm, I'm discovering at that time that I, I, I like art, I like music, and I found a way to make it. My father bought me a guitar, and I was like the only pretty much the only person on the yard with a guitar sometimes. Um, certainly one of the few black people on the yard who had a guitar. So I began to play music and, and impact people's lives and like tell stories, tell my story. Um, and hearing my story and telling my story, being able to write it, it like humanizes me in a way that I can see for myself. And when I sense mm -hmm. that people connect to it, I'm like, oh, I need to do this more. And I guess over time, I transformed in part in, into a person who does that, like uses story to, to like add value. Can you just talk a little bit about how you do that, like on a daily basis? Well, on a daily basis, I work with like question culture. And as a matter of principle, question culture seeks integration with community through culture, through art, right? I spend my time working with young people um, and facilitating conversations around masculinity, facilitating conversations around culture and identity. Um, what about masculinity? What do I talk about? Mm -hmm. What it means? What is it? Culture has taught us that masculinity um, is about like money and status, to be dominant inform, whether it's violently, whether it's intellectually, but just to dominate, right? Um, to have that type of control over others and yourself. And I asked the question, like, if making money makes you a real man, then a person who is just literally not able, a differently able person who doesn't have the means to go out and, like, make money, 
is that not a man? Like, is he is he not a man? Is he not? Does he not have value as a person? What it? What it? What is he? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and literally having to answer the question uh, that if they identify as a man, of course that's a man. And so I, I have conversations around how young folk, um, as the kids They're walk by, us. so cool. <laughs> How how young how young folk um, express their masculinity and finding ways to define their masculinity by what values they keep and not by how they um, necessarily present and what masks they wear. The current forms of masculinity in culture, or at least the most popular ones, are are ones that encourage young young men to wear masks to hide their vulnerableness, um, to hide their truth and the attributes attributed to the feminine. We'll be right back. Welcome back to What's Underneath Masculinity. What are the values that you think make you masculine? Integrity is, um, is important mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that I am a whole person in every room I'm in. Mm-hmm. I am not compartmentalized. I am not um, a different version of 88 in this room than I am in the room with my mother. Um, I'm the same. That is how I measure my masculinity. Mm. My values don't change based on what room or who I'm around. The values that I have around family and around community, I seek to like make sure my actions align with that. And to me, that's when I'm being the best man I can be. Can you take off your that whole wrist of bracelets? This yeah. one? Yeah. So along the journey of transformation and restoration, like in prison, like how did, did you start to like really own, like I did this? Well, I, I, in prison, sometimes people ask you what you're in prison for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of very superficial in the way mm-hmm. people often ask. And um, I found it as an opportunity to not make it a superficial conversation, Mm -hmm. but to always talk about it in as open and honest a way as I could, where even the person, if they've committed the same act, they can see like how I'm talking about it and how Mm -hmm. it's not rooted in shame, Mm -hmm. um, but it's also not rooted in glorifying Mm -hmm. my behavior. Did you have any relationship with the family of the, or do you, did you with the family of the No, I didn't didn't know um, him and his family. I don't have a right to desire anything of this family. Since you can't really desire or get like forgiveness from them, like how do you handle like forgiveness of yourself? Um, for me, forgiving myself is acknowledging that I can never pay back what I owe. Mm-hmm. No amount of prison sentence is going to pay back what I owe. No amount of taking my life or like it's gonna pay back what I owe. I can become a billionaire in my lifetime and donate all my money to all of uh, of the people in need um, that I can reach, and it still doesn't pay back what I owe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in order to in, in order to live, like you have to acknowledge that I not only can I not pay that back, mm-hmm. not to myself, not to this young man, not to the, his family, I have to forgive it. I have to absolve the debt and now live as if I have a clean slate with myself. And from that clean slate, now be who I want to be. Was there something that like sparked the forgiveness of self besides just generally kind of like the trajectory you were on with worthiness? I met people while incarcerated who, um, who have harmed people close to me. And in wanting my own restoration and in wanting my own solidified worthiness, I had to see it in other people. I had to see it in the worst thing this person has done and the worst thing this person has done. And so even the people who have harmed people close to me, I had, if I wanted it for myself, if I truly thought it was something innately endowed to me by the creator, then it must be true for you. Um, and I found that in, in, in friendships and relationships that I made, even with people who have done me harm and done people that I love harm. 
Major. Major. Can you take off your shoes? Did you meet your partner while you were inside? Yes, I met my wife um, when I was incarcerated. We met through Richie and his wife. She was friends with Richie's wife. And we kind of just hit it off. She really brought home the conversation around worthiness for me. She does work uh, with survivors of sexual violence. She talks about it. And she talks about worthiness with people who have been victims of sexual violence and how you can find your worthiness to to go forward. Um, And she brought that message to me and it changed my life. Um, She invites me to like discover myself without like feeling ashamed of what I discover um, and feeling empowered to do something about what I discover and shape who I am. Can you give an example? My music. I think I'm good at music. And as a rapper, I'm supposed to be like, I'm the hardest ever. Like, I'm the greatest rapper that ever lived. That's kind of in the culture. And you might hear me say that, but as an artist, for real, like, I can be insecure at times. And my wife is not a fan of my music because she's my wife. Like, she genuinely likes my music and she can talk about it. And in in a way, it kind of is not like it an ego stroke as much as it's like artist to artist, I'm telling you, like, this is a good line because of this. And it shaped the way I I view myself as an artist. It shapes when I'm going through tough moments, how I feel about those tough moments. And it's not like accredited to me not being a good enough artist, but rather just this is a moment that I'm struggling with my art form. She she taught me so much, was really there for me in, in, in a very dark time and allowed me to be there for her. We got married November 19th, 2021. So while you were in- While I was incarcerated, yeah. We got married during the pandemic. Wonderful. So can you just tell us what happened that got your like sentence reduced and, and like got you here today? Yeah. I met Richie Reseda in about 2015. And I was a very passionate, I was already politicized. I already had a political view and opinion and already considered myself an abolitionist according to like what I understood about abolition at the time. But when I met Richie, he exposed me to like organizing and like policy work. And while inside, I participated in and helped organize around passing laws that gave opportunities to um, earn time off your sentence. It was called Proposition 57. Inside this law also included uh, measures that made it a a right, sort of like a due process right for anyone who is incarcerated under the age of 18 to have what's called a transfer hearing or a fitness hearing. And they determine whether or not this child is fit and capable of being rehabilitated. When I was incarcerated at at 15, um, it wasn't that I had a right to that type of hearing, so I never got one. Mm. However, they didn't make it retroactive, but if you got your case back in court, then you would reap the benefits of having a transfer hearing that um, I spoke about. Fast forward, there has existed a law on the California books that said the secretary of CDCR, um, a district attorney, your judge, your court, could send a letter to your court and have your uh, sentence requested to be removed. And I happened to be the beneficiary of, of having that letter sent from the secretary of CDCR. I was investigated for the better part of a year and a half They looked into my file, they saw the work that I was doing inside and concluded that I was um, worthy of restoration and having my sentence recalled. Um, This happened in about 2019 and I spent the next two years, well, really the next three years, 2020 to 2022 when I was released, um, fighting a district attorney in court who was saying I wasn't worthy of being resentenced. And the courts disagreed. The law stated that they had to show that I would be a threat, a current threat to community and public safety. And of course they can't because I'm not. And 
that just worked out. I had my case transferred back to the juvenile justice department. And because I was 33 at the time, I was beyond like um, the jurisdiction of the juvenile courts. And they released me. I was ordered release at 10.20 on June 10th. And I was outside of prison gates by 10.40, June 10th. Oh my God. What year? Uh, last year, 2022. So it's only been, been about a year, right? A year and a half? A year and a half. Still fresh. Wow. I can't even imagine what that must have felt like. Dream. Unreal. I was standing in the parking lot of, I was waiting um, for my family. I was waiting for my family to come pick me up, a friend of the family. Um, and I'm standing downwind of a tree and I can smell it. Mm. And I just cry. I just break down and like the whole cry, I can still feel it. Like there are no trees in prison. So for me, what it was like coming home was like smelling a tree and remembering that trees exist for real, not just on TV, not just in a book. Everything is, is my first. I was a child. So everything I do is like the first time I'm ever doing it. What were some of the other memorable firsts for you when you got out? My first time on a plane, flying to Jersey to meet my in-laws and my wife's family. And I remember like walking through the airport, I got my bags. Feeling like, you know, making my way downtown. <laughs> it's just the feel, you know, it's just yeah. like, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> feels so good, you know, dragging my, my bag through the airport. And I'm like grinning. And when the plane takes off, I just cry like, yo, I'm on a plane right now. And we're flying like in LA, you know, you have to fly out over the ocean first. So it was cool to see that. It was cool to experience that. I, I like imagined it for, for years, what it was like to be on a plane. Can you take off your necklace? When do you feel the most vulnerable? I grew up around men, um, very macho presenting men, mostly. So conversations with men are kind of, could be described as hard. And so what I'm learning here is that I feel vulnerable in conversation with people who don't present like this. I have to like figure out what they mean. I find that I'm always trying to gauge what a person means in, in a facial expression, in a phrase, um, just because I didn't, I don't, I don't know genuinely. And that makes me feel vulnerable. It makes me feel exposed. It doesn't make me feel in danger all the time necessarily. Um, but I certainly do know, like, oh, I'm, I'm open to somebody imprinting something new. Your shirt, the first shirt. When do you feel the most beautiful and or handsome? Honestly, often. Um, I love myself. I, I really do. I, and not in, like, an a egotistical way do I mean that. Um, but something about growing up, like, in a confined space, you come to intimately know yourself. Like, I look at my body the most. I have all the time in the world. I've been looking at these hands my whole life, obviously, but like really looking at them, like spending time looking at my hands, looking at my shape and form. And so I, I, I like what I see. I know I look like my father and I know people find my dad to be attractive. So mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. Are you equally comfortable being called beautiful or handsome? If someone calls you handsome, calls me handsome, I think they mean it. Uh, I think they mean to express it in a very masculine form, like you are beautiful in a masculine way. I think that's what they mean. But when people tell me, 88, you are beautiful, I think they can mean two things, that they mean me as a person in my spirit. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I think they mean my physicality and they want to express that in a more gentle um, way. It makes me wonder, like, the, the way that you say that it's so unusual for, for people to actually be, to love themselves, like, physically. And I wonder if that 
your circumstance, like you were forced, you were in this very tight place and the choice was either hate yourself, be filled with shame, not serve your life, you know, not serve yeah. life yeah. or to actually get what it really means. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if that's like what you're act like, that's the actual beauty that you see or feel that you literally do feel that you feel that beauty. Prison um, can invite you to feel like death is imminent, that you're always, you're perpetually in an existential crisis, that your existence is at stake every time you wake up. You can feel like that. Because I think it's because of that why I um, value my life. I only, I only know personally, only know my existence in this, this form right now. Um, and if I have this form, I, I want to think about how I use it. I want to think about how I appreciate it, how I treat my form, how I use it to to help my life or help other people's lives. Can you belt? Oh, there's the belt. Mm -hmm. Oh, so many surprise layers. Okay, yeah, belt. You're what would you tell your 11 year old self? That you are right as you are, bro. You don't have to prove um, your your worth. You know. You have such like a gentle, soft like energy. Can you relate or remember or connect to the person at fifteen that like did that? When I was fifteen, a lot of times I felt like hardness is the only way to be. That toughness is the only way I can present myself. So to, to, to present softer and, and calmer and, and was not acceptable in my mind, in my brain. It was not something I was allowed to do. Mm -hmm. Culture had not given me permission to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, I, I know my 15-year-old way of being. Mm -hmm. I relate to it. It's a part of me. It's a part of who I am even now. It's just not wrapped in, you know, the the toxic clothing that it once came in. Pants? What is your wildest dream? My wildest dream is that people will, young people will find true value in my life story. My wildest dream is that, that I don't go down in history as someone who just murdered somebody. But that from my life, from my story, someone else's life was changed and impacted and made better. That my story contributes to someone's prosperity. That it contributes to my own. That is truly my wildest dream. That it doesn't just stop with what the court reported, but that a seed can be planted or grow from it. What does it mean to you to be man enough? Being man enough, that phrase means to be hard, to be solid, to be impenetrable. That's how I learned it. If I were to redefine it for myself, being a man looks like having integrity. Being a man looks like keeping my word, living out what I believe, um, and doing so in a way that isn't harmful to others. Being a man looks like honoring my top five for me. Um, my top five is a list of uh, most important values, goals, and, and or people. Um, and I make this list often. I redo it all the time. What's your top five right now? My top five right now is to honor God, Indigo Mateo, who's my wife, um, and right now it's really has changed to like finding my style for real. I'm not going to cap. I went to black market flea, <laughs> my style and my sound. I should be say the fifth one. Um, finding my voice in prison was like finding my identity, finding my artistic voice. I mean, that feels very important to me. And a part of that feels like how I express myself outwardly in my fashion too. I'm paying attention. And I feel like it's necessary for me to get a grip on it, to feel like whole in myself, mm -hmm. to, to express the worthiness that I was just speaking about. 
the worthiness that doesn't come with having a prisoner down your leg. Beautiful. Can you take off the bracelet, I guess? Yeah, and also maybe take your hair down. How do you feel now? I feel less nervous, ironically. <laughs> um, I started off feeling very nervous sitting in a stool and I have since gotten comfortable. Was it what you thought it was gonna be like? I didn't I didn't know what to expect, so I didn't I wasn't really like trying to guess either, which made me very afraid. <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad it wasn't like anything to be afraid of. That's awesome that you feel that way. <laughs> And that was What's Underneath with JJ88. We're very grateful to him for sharing himself so authentically with us. And we hope you found healing on your own journey towards self-acceptance through his story. You can watch the video version of this interview and see our guests remove their layers in all their singular glory by heading to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash style like you. And that's with the letter U, not the Y-O-U. Each week on our YouTube channel, you can also find a debrief video where Lily and I sit down with Hesu Joe, a licensed therapist from BetterHelp, to unpack the lessons and incredible takeaways from each episode. Speaking of which, we're so grateful to our incredible sponsor, BetterHelp, for supporting us in bringing this series to life. If you're looking to take your mental health journey to the next level and are thinking of starting therapy, you can enjoy 10% off of your first month of therapy at betterhelp.com slash what's underneath. Before we go, remember to follow Man Enough on all social platforms at We Are Man Enough and visit manenough.com slash podcasts for more episodes of What's Underneath Masculinity and the Man Enough podcast. And don't forget to follow at Style Like You on social media as well. We'll be back next week with another amazing guest and can't wait to see you there.